0: war, corruption, and political instability, they seem to aptly describe the end of Benjamin Netanyahu's term as the Israeli Prime Minister, an office he has held for 12 years. There's been four elections in the last two years, but he has failed to form a coalition, each time leading to good luck in the Knesset. So on Wednesday night, one hour before the deadline, the head of the opposition, Yair Lapid, announced to President Draven Rivlin that he was able to form a coalition government. However, Yair Lapid, the head of the centrist Yeshatid party, will not become Prime Minister. Instead, Naftali Bennett, his longtime rival and leader of the New Right party, will replace Bibi. This coalition government also marks the first time Mansour Abbas will take part, and is the first time an Arab party will be part of the government in decades. Nevertheless, with a fragile majority of only plus one, and disparate political beliefs amongst the coalition parties, This makes for a fragile arrangement. However, Bibi is a cat with nine lives, so I'd never fully count him out. So now to discuss, I have my co-host here, Jonah van Dreisem and Neve van Jacob, a former member of the IDF. So Neve, let's start with you. Tell us how Israelis feel about the change. How are they reacting to this new coalition government and the removal of Bibi, who's been a long time political figure. You know, he, he's almost become a cultural icon in the country with many of the people uh, fondly referring to him as I have as Bibi. So take it away.
1: Um, okay, so, well, uh, I, I live in a generally leftist area. So a lot of people here are kind of generally glad to see the shift in power and you know getting out of office but it's the people that are taking in the vacuum or going into his job is it's it's it, we're all very skeptical at the end of the day um like like you said it's it's kind of like a a culture thing to just uh protest bb i remember about a year and a year and a half ago Every so often, my dad or my friends would post pictures of people across the country waving banners in intersection on the highway, on freeways in the middle of the town of anti-Netanyahu, uh, 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 anti-Bibi, basically. Uh, it's 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 really weird right now. I Personally, I don't know what to, to think of it right now because... I, as soon as I turned 18, I got into the whole shit show of, uh, um, uh, is it okay if I curse or, uh, so it, I turned 18 and I was just starting to understand the politics of, uh, the country I live in. And it's kind of a shell shock to just say, all right, you can vote. And then six months later, say, all right, you can vote again. And then six months later again, and then I finish my service and then I'm voting once more in the span of being I'm also an American citizen. So I was able to, I started my, by voting for, uh, in 2000, I don't remember 2016. Yes. Then the, and then the four votes, uh, the four different elections for my country and then another, uh, the final election, uh, of, uh, 2020 it's just kind of crazy for me that it in four years I was able, I voted six times. I I just don't know what to really make of what's going on right now. I'm and, uh, and, and, and top of all the pandemic and, uh, the situation that recently just happened with Gaza is just really has me unsettled. If, if I can
2: follow up on kind of that unsettlement you have there, um, obviously this change in government, uh, the stability that has kind of somewhat seemingly come now to Israel, the Israeli political scene with this uh, announced coalition. And obviously as John stated, the uh, BB still has a week to try and blow this thing up. Um, and it, 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 There is a lot of speculation that Yamina, uh, one of Nathali Bennett's members, one or two, could defect to Likud and bring them down. So obviously still tentative. Um, but there was a lot of feeling that the recent conflict and this new government was formed in response to Netanyahu's kind of decision making inside the recent 11 day war. Um, can you tell us, just obviously from your community and from your perspective, how responsible you think the political instability and uh, Netanyahu's attempts to hold on to power were for, uh, responsible for this, the most recent flare up of, of violent conflict?
1: I don't think uh, specifically he had anything to do like any major part in the conflict. It's this, the conflict between Gaza is recurring. It's something that happens every year, especially during this time period. Uh, It happened during Ramadan and also the uh, Jerusalem day. And for you guys, I don't know if you know, but during Jerusalem day, there's uh, what's the supremacist Jewish supremacist waving flags, and being just obnoxious uh, all across Jerusalem to the Palestinians there—it's it's just something that reoccurs. In general, though, I think the instability is something that didn't happen overnight. Over the des- recent decision making of uh, Bibi, it's just over, especially over the pandemic, but it's o- buildup of all the hor- like the wrong stuff uh, decisions he's made from. Uh, constantly pushing back his own
0: uh, trial using the pandemic as a, an excuse, as the way I see it. So I think, I think maybe what Jonah's trying to get at there, um, you know, correct me if, if, you, if I'm wrong, but uh, the Gaza war seems to be inexorably tied to politics. I mean, uh, the PLO obviously called off the elections because they thought Hamas was going to take charge. So we can say from that, maybe Bibi didn't start the conflict, but like, he's definitely as a strong man, he presents himself as similar to Putin or Bolsonaro, they, they exploit conflict to, uh, you know, stir up nationalist sentiment and get a boost in the polls, but it, it, it hasn't seemed to work this time. Are Israelis just fed up with the violence? Are they looking for a more moderate solution for like peace? Well, it,
1: for sure, it's definitely tied to politics. It's 100%, one of the things that I don't know if you guys know about this, but we call, we don't call them wars, we call them uh, operations just for the political card that we can can hold. So uh, uh, in terms of, uh, I don't know how, which is uh, government spending for the reserve duty, for instance, so we get more funding for that or when it comes to the UN or whatnot, there's a huge difference between calling it an operation and a war. And I think this time, in terms of uh, BB using it as help, I don't, I, I don't know if it was because Israelis are fed up, or from specifically, I, I, I don't know really what to make of it. Uh, I think, maybe,
2: um, maybe may be a better way to clarify, right, in the sense of, you know. of thinking about is like obviously it's linked to politics and as you said right so what you're saying to us as far as i'm gathering is right it wasn't really bb starting this war now to try and keep into power as some have tried to portray it as but ultimately it was still his responsibility because of his policies and kind of his long-term attitude that's ultimately you know as much as there's these yearly as you called them operations Um, around this time and kind of a flare up of conflict around Jerusalem day, kind of the recent lead up and avoidance of criminal prosecution and criminal justice is ultimately what made it an untenable situation. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I guess. Um, Whether he's, he had a hand in starting it or not, I don't know but whether he used it for political gain that
0: that i do know um do so you think you think he exploited the violence to try and boost israeli nationalism i
1: don't think i think so at all in an attempt to keep his seat of power from a pre, from history of knowing him uh i know his main goal is just to keep his seat of power
0: and I think that goes to something Jonah said, which is the corruption charges. You know, as long as he remains prime minister, he can't really be charged. Yeah, John, um, you're frozen right now. There you go. Oh, there hello? you go. You're back. Yeah, you're yeah, back. As, lo- as long as uh, BB stays as prime minister, he can't be charged. Is that correct, Nave? Uh,
1: from a technical standpoint, he can be charged. But I think as long as he has power, he will do everything he can w- within that power to delay it and delay it and delay it until I don't know what his end game plan is I mean he used the I mean, pandemic lockdowns to delay his trials
0: yeah so like obviously legally he's in court right now fighting it out like it's not like he's completely immune but he can abuse no. the office yeah. of he can abuse his office to delay and, and uh, obstruct the the justice system yeah he,
1: he definitely can and I think he knows that people know, notice it but he's just delaying, I guess, what I see as inevitable. Maybe he has an endgame plan that seems to work out for him, but I sure hope they so, won't.
0: So what do you think of his opposition? Do you have any faith in them? <sighs> I don't have
1: that much faith in the opposition, to be honest. I know they're equally just they're very equal to him. They also want to see the power just for the sake of power from the way I see it. There's not much people that I see that in the Knesset or in government right now that see for the betterment of the people, more as in the betterment of themselves and their own party. And as you know, in in a young adult of this country, I don't know how that affects me in the future.
2: The two names that have been obviously Yar Lapid is the largest and most powerful member of this coalition, as the most seats, the person who is given the mandate to form government. Um, however, uh, Mansour Abbas obviously is joining the cabinet, um, not only joining the cabinet, but likely joining the security cabinet, which is the most exclusive and powerful part of the Israeli government. And obviously, uh, Neftali Bennett joining as prime minister, and then Yar Lapid and him switching the positions of foreign affairs ministers. So three very, very different people there, um, obviously united around this idea of ditching Netanyahu. I mean, do you, are Israelis thinking that this is gonna bring stability, that you know, the, the, the coalition has promised to just focus on economic domestic issues, try and you know, Lapid, Abbas, and Bennett all have a veto on any foreign policy issues. So it's not likely a ton is going to change. Um, other than perhaps some slowdown of current Israeli policy. But my, my more general question is do people think that this is going to calm things down, at least that this is a unity government that it, this represents a number of factions and even if it doesn't accomplish a great number of things, it might just cool tensions because things might just not be happening and by having things kind of chill um, be by not having all these great big political conversations it would be kind of a managerial government do you see that being kind of what's coming into place or do you think it's just going to be this government is so different so completely at odds that it's going to collapse within a year
1: um i don't know about collapse but it's completely different from what we're used to again like 12 I don't know, 12 or so years of uh bb's government it's going to be extremely different whether we see it as something good i don't think a lot of people see it as something good i think a lot of people see it as a different danger to worry about because bennett has his agenda which is uh i'm not actually quite sure about that actually i think of it on
2: well, I mean, was Netanyahu's chief of staff, so has some
0: similarities yeah, to him. Yeah, he so, had. Yeah, so kind of... I actually saw him once. <laughs> oh, this... so? So I think uh, I think what we're trying to get at here is like, this is more or less more of the same, won't it be? I mean, like, I feel at least that uh, not much yeah. will change. I mean, Bennett is uh, part of the military apparatus. He was a Secretary of Defense from 2019 to 2020. Um, he's, he's definitely right wing so is Mansour Abbas like, people are trying to portray this as a, as a left wing government but, and uh, move from the right wing L- Likud I don't see that happening I see the possibility that this goes even more right wing than Likud what, what do you say to that I do think it will be more right winged I think it's going to be
1: more uh, warmongering honestly um, that I am worried about as you know, someone who's still doing reserve duty and has friends that are also doing still active, uh, just in general in safety, but also for in, ger- in general, in the future, I know it's all they want is just more power and to get it from like, not, uh, I don't know how to put words into it. I'm trying to translate it from Hebrew, not, not to get it from the best of sources, I guess.
0: Okay, so uh, what, what about, you've talked a lot about foreign policy, the war monarchy, but what do you think about domestic change? I mean, uh, Tel Aviv is a famously left-wing, you know, like pro-gay marriage, uh, pro-woman's right city, but the rest of the countries, especially the rural parts, are, are a lot more conservative. What, what, what do you think will happen for social change? Do you think there's a possibility that uh, the country as a whole will move towards Looking like Tel Aviv, or is it going to go back to entrenched uh, religious fundamentalism? I think the domestic policy won't
1: change too much. To be honest, um, everyone's f- focused on the foreign policy, but also I don't think Bennett is a complete. It's completely blind. Like he sees the amount of the the how uh, central Tel Aviv is and similar uh, cities to. This liberal state of mind, but um, I I I don't think he'll do any drastic changes for the for the against liberal the uh, liberal state of mind.
2: Kind of moving off of policy and more of kind of your concern to the future. Um, you mentioned obviously member of the Israeli former member of the Israeli Defense Force. Um, you were called up to service again as a reservist uh, during this most recent flare up of tensions and the conflict. Yeah. Can you, and obviously you're worried because you, I'm sure you don't want to go out again with a gun in your hand that you said you, you're friends and you don't want to go out there, you know, obviously doing your duty, but not something you enjoy, something you're looking forward to. Can you kind of just describe what it was like for you being called up, especially as someone who was not in active service, but then was, had to be called up um, by the government and put into a really difficult situation. Can you know
1: tell us what you're comfortable con-
2: with? But please, if you con- could describe yeah, it
1: better yeah 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 yeah, I can. I think I think I can talk about that. Um, for me, luckily, I don't have to go out to anywhere dangerous, but it's no less critical. Um, contrary to what it might sound like, I I was glad I was called up because um, I was called up a few days three or four days after the whole uh, attack began, I knew it was gonna come, I, it was just a matter of time, but I was glad I was called up because I knew uh, the soldiers that are still on duty, they were doing their job and I knew I was going there to relieve them. I, whether I was doing something, I was gonna do something important or not, I know the most important thing I was gonna be doing is letting those uh, guys you know, rest after long, long hours of work. Like the, the, the shifts that we had to do were 12 hours and 12 hours, every rotation. It's, it's, it's kind of brutal.
0: So you just uh, said that you expected it to happen. You expected to be called up. You expected the violence. Why is that?
1: It, it's not that I expected the violence. Well, I did expect the violence, but that's just from, you know, prior knowledge of my uh, previous service it's just from a hunch or from uh, how i knew things usually behaved and how things came out even if i wasn't in duty we we all know how things happen here gaza starts launching rockets the idf will deter those rockets and also actively attack launch sites uh or any other target it deems fit the, the idf deems fit So I knew it was going to happen and I knew because of where I was, I was, where I served, I knew I I needed to be called at some point
0: to help in the effort. So obviously Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2006, um, but there's been occasional uh, military incursions uh, into the area, um, especially to sometimes clear out high level targets um, what, what do you think the chances are that this uh, escalates once again, and that uh, ground forces are, could be deployed? I mean, every time one of these rocket attacks happen, we see uh, Israeli tanks massing on the border. You know, whether it's a show of force or, inte- or you know they're actually intending to go in is always unclear. But w- what do you see the likelihood that a that a ground uh, force could be sent in again? Maybe even an occupation like like happened. Uh, uh in the early 2000s i don't think an occupation will happen
1: anytime soon i i hope i'm right um and in terms of another flare-up from uh looking previously in the past two years i don't think a flare-up will happen anytime soon because a conflict usually happens in regards to what's going on right now in the country or going on in the area uh whether it be in a a stabbing attack in Jerusalem or the end of the Ramadan clashing with the flags or what happened in the temple of the, the at, at uh, the mosque Al-Aqsa it, it really depends on what's going on and unless something major happens again I don't
0: think anything will seriously happen okay so you mentioned the Alaska mosque there sorry John to cut you off there um go ahead uh, maybe do you want to explain to people what what this is and why it's so contentious? Why is the Temple Mount such a big deal between Israelis and Palestinians? In general, or the situation that happened, like why? Is In it- general, like well, both. Why is this a continued source of conflict between these two peoples?
1: Well, Al Al-Aqsa is a mosque that is uh, above the Western Wall. Uh, and the only people that are allowed there freely to traverse there are Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims, or I'm uh, not quite sure how to define them, but they freely roam there uh, and heavily geared police officers in full riot gear and uh, rifles and whatnot. And occasionally, you know, groups of uh, Tourists or Jews are allowed to go up there, with uh, the simple rule of not being allowed to wear any religious symboling and not to be disrespectful to the area. It's it's generally a holy ground for Muslims. Um, there, the mosque used to be also open for everyone, for all people, but a few years ago there was a incident with an Australian uh, tourist lighting. Lighting a fire in the mosque, and then the mosque was closed to only Muslims. Uh, what recently happened, as we all know, is uh, officers, uh, police officers, stormed the, the mosque while people were praying. But it's a pretty gray area what act, what happened. And one uh, hand, I know the we know that I know that the police officers were attacking the rioters because they were being provoked by being thrown rocks at but they were using also excessive force and there was also the mixture of what was happening uh around jerusalem in general the eviction of people from their homes and it just ca- caused a lot of tension uh that to build up and you know just pop uh, in that area it was ramadan hundreds and hundreds even thousands of uh, muslims with prayers in there and uh a good a good amount of uh police officers in full riot which is doesn't make a crowd really calm it, in in fact the
0: opposite uh, aggravates them even more so is it is it uh would i be correct in saying it's kind of hard to p- pin blame on completely one side or the other you know both of them act in provocative ways both of them uh have like a very like there's a lack of trust and faith between the two groups so all these provocations uh between them you know it easily escalates uh, since there's no goodwill between the two parties is, is that basically correct I,
1: I think there well there is no trust whatsoever between uh, the Muslim population or Palestinian population and um, the police and also the religious populace uh, but I don't think it, I don't think it's like a point which side is wrong I think it's more of a scale as in which side has done more wrong and which side has done least wrong. Both sides have obviously just just done bad things, but one side has used a bit more excessive force than the other. Because so, so,
2: we're running low on time here, and I just
1: wanted to touch
2: upon something almost hopeful, if I may, um, but just kind of with the change in government and with the change in the U.S., there was... There's a lot of speculation that uh, Biden is going to have the ability with this new government uh, because it will be a better relationship than the one that Obama and Biden had with Netanyahu and on and on and on, right, with Democratic presidents struggling to have a good relationship with him. Um, obviously, there's a lot of questions still. But do you think that Biden is going to be able to exert more influence over this government, A, and then B... Is that, give, is that put Biden in a strong enough position to, you know, I think it's doubtful that anyone is going to be negotiating, like, a grand peace plan, but do you think Biden could move the needle uh, in a, a truly positive direction, or is it just going to default backwards?
1: After the previous administration, I have a lot more faith in Biden. I have, like, more than maybe that it should be, but I do think he can get the ball rolling, and terms of a better relationship between the U.S. and Israel. Uh, Recently, I just uh, heard on the radio, I think it was either this morning or yesterday, that on the news, uh, they said uh, the U.S. declared that it will fully uh, rearm the Iron Dome uh, pods, which is amazing. The Iron Iron Dome pods aren't, the Iron Dome isn't meant for attack. It's meant purely for defense and seeing the U.S., hearing the U.S. declaring that it will Help support Israel in defending itself is tremendous
0: news. It's amazing. So, and of course, I, yeah. oh, sorry, that I, I, of yeah, course, yeah, no, I think, no, no. um, I, I think it's important for people to remember that you know, without the Iron Dome, Israel's actions would be far more aggressive. Um, without the Iron Dome, those 3,000 rockets would have landed in Israel, and that would have caused a big retaliation. So the, the Iron Dome might be the single uh, thing which has kept peace, which has stopped escalations of violence, because it's allowed Israel to basically go unharmed from these rocket attacks. Is yeah. that relatively it, correct?
1: I, I think it is. Uh, is it okay if I speak a bit about the just personally being attacked? <laughs> so, yeah, go um, for it. So the Iron Dome doesn't, attack, doesn't fire at every single rocket that Gaza fires over the course of, I don't, since it was implemented, I think in 2014, only about 1,200, 1,500 rockets have been fired from the Iron Dome. It's fires specifically at rockets that the system detects that it's going to probably land in a populated area, which is amazing technology, but it's still terrifying to be in a house not hearing the air raid siren because the iron dome won't act fire on a rocket, but still hearing rockets flying over my house. I like I more often than not, I heard explosions from the rockets. I don't know if they were detonating in there or in the ground, but I heard them more often than
0: hearing the siren for the iron dome. I mean, just personally, I remember when I, when I lived in Israel for that summer, every single house I had was a bomb shelter. You know, every single house I, I was in, there was one room that was a bomb shelter. And, you know, that it's, it's just a different mindset. I don't think people realize, um, you know, we're safe in Canada here. I, I don't think people realize the ever-present threat that exists there. And that maybe changes your mindset a bit. Um, oh, do you want to speak oh, to that sorry. at all?
1: Yeah. Um, I actually talk a lot. I, I play video games. So I talk a lot with people that are not from Israel and don't have the same experience as I do. I have mostly Europeans, but also Americans. And when I talk to them, it's it's kind of weird because when they're talking about a bomb shelter, you immediately think, oh, it's just a crazy guy who thinks it's the end of the world. But when I'm talking about a bomb shelter here, it's like, who doesn't have a bomb shelter? You'd be crazy not to have one or how normal it is, how in schools in uh, parallel to having fire drills, we also have missile attack drills. And in the actual schools, every section of the school has a, a sign saying how many seconds you have to reach the bomb shelter before a potential bomb can happen. Rooms can potentially go up from 120 seconds to as little as 15 to 20 seconds to reach a bomb shelter. It is—it sounds crazy, but it's—it's it's normal here. It, it's normal life
0: like that. Jonah, you have any last questions here? Yeah, no, I was just, just kind of absorbing
2: that because I kind of think about the shooter drills we have in the U.S. and how we kind of, like, people ask, oh, is that really necessary? Or is, like, doing that? And, I, you know, it for me, I just can't imagine for children, right? Like, <laughs> you know, we were walking around the school and that's, it's 120 seconds to the nearest bomb shelter. So it, it, yeah. it just, it's stunning for to me. I mean, I think about, you know, really my question is if you could just ask you know or say something to you know people this is your chance to just say like you know something to reconsider something to think what would that be what would you what would you want people to like try and rethink about this whole thing
0: yeah like what what are some of the biggest misconceptions from uh, that you see in the newspapers like what what do we get wrong about this conflict
1: the israeli people and the palestinian people what i want mostly to get is that the israeli people even those that still serve in the IDF, mostly you know the, the lower ranks, not the high command, and Palestinians or Muslims that are under the ruling of Hamas, at the end of the day, we don't represent these groups, these organizations, whether it's Hamas or our government. And we're just normal people that want peace. We want, pe- we want to live our days peacefully, normally, go to work, come back home safely without worrying if
0: uh, a two-ton explosive device is going to land in my home. And uh, w- what about the idea, you see this in the news a lot, that Israel is an apartheid state. Can you talk a bit about that? I mean, when I was in Israel, I saw plenty oh, of Arabs sorry, going what? around. There's this idea in the news media that Israel is an apartheid state. But obviously, with this Arab government coming into power in coalition with the, with the right wing, uh, that's kind of been challenged. Um, do you want to talk at all about that? You know, like your experience with Arab integration in the country? It's
1: it is it is just a it's just a mess. <laughs> it really is. Um, I mean, I I see Arabs. They're not, you know, rare. Obviously, they're just people too to living. Today I was at work. I saw uh, some Arabs. You know, talking. The security guard was a uh, Arab. He was talking on the phone the entire time uh, in Arabic. It was uh, normal. But there is always a general feeling when i'm on a bus and there's another guy there that is arab that i'm scared is it's subtle racism honestly but it's it's
0: it's and i know you like you're a nice guy like i i never saw you do anything racist but these are just subconscious things that you're saying exist
1: it, it, it exists and there's it's not like you're going to walk down in the street and you're going to see uh, a jewish house a jewish house or an arab house an arab house a jewish house it's it's it's, it's nothing like that it's strictly jewish neighborhoods then there's an arab village Jew, and, and it, it's all separated it's not even in the same district um like self-segregated and, almost self yeah and it's not even also just you know completely towards only uh arabs and jews it's also jews and religious jews um or as uh the hasidic not not only the hasidic but the uh i don't know how to uh, how to translate it uh people that live in the territories that move into the the settlers the settlers yes that's another thing uh, but that's a, a, another big topic
0: all right there well i think we're basically out of time so I think we should end it there. That, that was great to talk with you, Neve.
2: So John, that was a really interesting conversation with uh, Neve and Jacob there. I think he's a really insightful guy. Uh, I, I really appreciated how he was willing to be self-reflective about himself and kind of some of the challenges he faces in everyday life. It, it, it's a fascinating place and it's a fascinating challenge um, that I'm not sure can ever be solved, but I'm optimistic. And I want to kind of lay out right now the, between the two of us, because I know we've been disagreeing about it, that I, I do have a lot of optimism about this new government. I mean, I'm not, I'm not blind to the challenges there, but I am, I am hopeful. Uh, And the reason I'm hopeful is in part because Nafali Bennett is actually such an extreme guy, Um, but he's willing to go into a coalition with someone who's on the total opposite viewpoint of his uh, ideology, his worldview, uh, Mansour Abbas. And what it really reminded me of when I saw these people working together was um, the end of South Africa's apartheid regime, and particularly... uh, the president of that time, Frederick Leclerc, uh, who reminds me a lot of Bennett. And the reason he reminds me a lot of Bennett is uh, both of them kind of came up through their traditional institutions of power. They were close friends of the incumbent, leading members of the right wing, uh, were seen as largely status quo figures, maybe even more extreme than previous figures in those state. Um, but they also recognized the need for change. Uh, And specifically in the case of Leclerc, he obviously uh, was willing to allow, freed Nelson Mandela, uh, allowed Nelson Mandela to run in elections, and then formed, once he lost to Mandela in those elections, formed a unity government with him and helped implement the new South African government. And obviously there's so much complexity and difficulty there, but I think just that basic step forward of the, these two extremes, and then Yar himself, who is a very strong proponent of peace and change, um, willing to work together as the three big partners in this coalition. You know, no guarantees, but I think it bodes very well. I think it could be the dam break, potentially.
0: What do you think? Yeah, so I have, I have a bit of a different view. Um, I don't have any faith in this government succeeding. Um, I think it's very much reminiscent of uh, Likud's uh, former coalition with uh, Cahole Levan, that's uh, blue and white, um, where Bibi went into power in a power-sharing agreement with uh, Benny Gantz, and it basically immediately fell apart. And I just see this as a even more exacerbated issue than that, because that was two parties with fa- fairly similar views unable to work together. This is eight parties. This is eight political parties with a disparate, disparate group of uh, ideological ideas that are not at all compatible. Um, of course, they do sa- share some similarities, but th- there's huge disagreements. And we've already seen uh, one member, Amiche uh, Hikli, has defected and said th- they're not going to join this uh, coalition party. And it's reduced the majority to 61 seats, the bare minimum to form a government. And uh, Neil Abach, another uh, member of Yamina, has uh, said he's possibly interested in defecting as well to Likud. So I don't even think this government may form, you know, there's a possibility that it'll fall apart before it even happens, uh, let alone surviving for four years. I think
2: a totally legitimate point. I mean, I think any coalition government, there's always questions about can it survive the four years? I think, you know, Yamina is a very interesting party because it constantly combines and this combines itself with Likud, right? You've seen that in the last, in the, what is it, the four four elections they've had in the last two years, uh, Yamina has run uh, in two of those elections as a joint slate uh, with Likud. So you're absolutely right that there's a real possibility of defection. Oftentimes though, you do see this in Israeli politics, uh, particularly with MPs who are kind of on the edges who are not that popular with the leader, and they're like, oh, I may vote against the confidence motion. And I'm sure, you know, Naftali Bennett wants to be prime minister really, really badly. He knows if he goes into an election now after making this deal without having delivered something, his base is probably gonna bail on him and go to Likud. So I, I mean there's obviously dangers within that. But my guess is that the members who are threatening to defect will have some pretty senior ministries. Um, to kind of assuage their guilt. And I also think that actually bodes well that such um, aggressive opponents of of the left uh, of this plan would actually end up be giving ministries to placate themselves to support this plan because I think it means that they are acting in such a way that they know that people, I think A, Israel is just sick and tired of constant elections. I mean, I I can't, I've had to vote three or four times in the last four years, right? And I'm, I don't want to vote that much. So I can't imagine how sick and tired of it. So I think there's, I think there's just a kind of a sick and tired of so much political churn and particularly with Netanyahu's corruption that I think they will get in, um, obviously narrowly, as you said, but I think, I think, I think stability will come purely out of a sense of people are tired.
0: Yeah and I want to touch on two things you said there. So first uh you mentioned uh Lapid and the power sharing. Uh I think I think you're right. Uh, Bennett does want to be in power and Yael Lapid did something uh pretty smart but which could turn out to be a fatal mistake. He he offered Nafdali Bennett the first two-year term as prime minister and they're going to exchange and a swap, and he'll get the second two years. This is a sign of good faith. He's putting himself out there. And similarly, I think maybe some of the protests, uh, some of the grumblings we've seen on the far right in Yamina, um, they may just be angling for a political appointment. That, that's entirely possible. But we also have to remember that junior partners in these agreements can often get screwed over. I mean, uh, Benny Gantz, one of his big reasons for leaving the coalition government with Bibi was that he was getting sidelined. Bibi was just consolidating power around himself. And the same thing happened with the Lib Dems getting into a coalition government in the UK. They just got sidelined. The junior partner is often in a bad, bad spot. You know, they, they just uh, get pushed out of power. Um, And I I think the same thing's going to happen. I I really see no faith in this.
2: Well, I mean, I totally understand
0: your point on that, but I think the thing is Nathalie
2: Bennett, as much as he's prime minister, is the junior coalition partner, right? I mean, uh, to, to be frank, he's actually, um, he, he, it's funny, He he's tied with several other parties in this coal, coalition, uh, Cole Levine, uh, as you mentioned, blue and white, under Benny Gantz. Uh, and, and you know what, and Benny Gantz himself is an interesting figure because he was the leader of, the uh, anti Netanyahu campaign for the first two elections. And then because people were getting, because COVID 19 hit and there was really seen as a push, he bent uh, and joined Netanyahu's coalition. So uh, it's not surprising to me uh, that that coalition fell apart just because Gantz was so mad. I, I mean, to an extent, I actually think there's less trust between Gantz and Lapide than there is between uh, Lapide and uh, Bennett because Gantz betrayed Lapide. Uh, to join Netanyahu when Lapid quite purposely combined his party to join a slate with blue and white in the previous two elections to fight uh, first three elections to fight Netanyahu. Um, so, I, you know, there's, there's so many unique dynamics in this coalition, but I think the thing is, no one's going to be able to sign blind each other because it is, uh, there's no true senior partner in this coalition. I mean, if it was that Yamina, and Bennett were the dominant party in this, that they had say 30 seats of the 60 seat coalition, I would say, yeah, you're probably right that Bennett's gonna dominate, that he'll probably try and consolidate power. But Yara has specifically placed each of the party leaders on the National Security Council. Uh, Benny Gantz is gonna remain as defense minister, Lapid's gonna take over the foreign ministry and that will be the rotation he has with Bennett. Uh, and then Mansour Abbas, I'm not sure if they officially announced what ministry Abbas is gonna be holding in the cabinet, but my understanding from the agreement is he will be inside the security cabinet, which is massive. And so it's not like one party or the other is gonna dominate so much in that extent. And then once again, individual ministries, you kind of get to those domestic ministries. Obviously, they're powerful, um, but individual ministers will control that bureaucracy uh, and will obviously not want one party or the other to steal that away. So but within that self, of course, that could be the thing that brings down the coalition, right, that everyone's there's no there's no natural balance of power within inside this coalition. So it could fall apart but I think that's also the opportunity here, right? That everyone's truly on equal footing. Um, now the question is, okay, everyone's on equal footing. So that how much is gonna actually get approved in cabinet? How much legislation is gonna get on the table? Um, you know, Israel faces a major economic crisis as does most of the world. How are they gonna, and that's what this coalition is all about. They're gonna get uh, economic aid out there. and gonna get moving. Obviously, Mansour Abbas, I imagine, is going to demand a lot more support for uh, Arab Israelis, uh, Muslim Israelis, and pote- potentially even more support inside the Gaza Strip, which makes sense. I'm sure that's already been partially agreed to inside this agreement. But the question is how extreme, how much support, it is, right? Because there is certainly a sense of Israel and Israelis wanting to make sure that they're taking care of themselves themselves first and absolutely, right? Because they feel they've been mistreated by the world and others and they need to protect themselves. So I think more than the foreign policy question because I think the foreign policy has stability in the sense of how the cabinet's been set up. I think it's that question of the domestic push and pull because uh, Bennett is obviously someone who led the settlers was a settler leader. Um, one, much of the way I kind of see him is similar to potentially the clerk and he's someone who understands the settlers does not want a two-state solution, uh, I think rightly recognizes that probably is impossible now, particularly for the settlers. So it, it'd be interesting to see, because I think what's going to come out of this is because there will be more investment in Gaza based, forced to, to happen based off this, the dynamics of this coalition, um, that you may actually see a, a, a larger push to some sort of one-state solution.
0: Yeah, and I think there's, you really hit the nail on the head there when you said uh, it's an anti bb coalition. That's that's 100% what it is. They, they share almost nothing in common, except they want to get Netanyahu out of power. He's completely consolidated the state around himself. And I think in some ways, that's why a lot of people are still voting for him. They just really can't see uh, the country without Bibi. He's a, a natural statesman. Likud is similar to the Tory party in the UK. It's just a natural ruling party. And I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people to, to get over the change. And uh, you also mentioned Mansour Abbas. I mean, it is historic. He's the first uh, Arab-Israeli to be included in the Security Council and to uh, be entered into a power-sharing agreement in a, in a generation. You know, this hasn't happened in a long time. But uh, you mentioned uh, the economic policy. I, I think this is something Mansour Abbas is uh, purposely putting forth. I mean, he's spent his career pushing for further economic um help to the Palestinians and further economic help to the Arab Israelis. But he's been using this to obscure the fact that he's a homophobe and he's a misogynist. He I mean he's we should not make any qualms about this. He is a hard right Islamic fundamentalist. He's this is not a left-wing coalition. I mean well, it's, one things, it's one of the Bennett oh, sorry ahead. don't mean to catch you up but I mean it's, it's
2: probably one of the things he and Neftali Bennett have in common is that they are both, yeah that's that's kind of what common. I was
0: exactly about to say you know like <laughs> The, those two parties uh, are far right. But, uh, you know, together, they only make up a fraction of the coalition. I mean, Yamina has seven seats, possibly only five of them are joining. Um, and Ram has four. I mean, so that's nine out of 61 seats are hard right on the on the culturally conservative values. But I mean, uh, you know, that, that's not that's not a majority. But it also it also means that the left wing ideas of perhaps getting, uh, you know, civil marriages put forth for gay people. I doubt that's going to happen. You know, they're going to be obstructionists. They're going to block any uh, domestic uh, social change. No, absolutely. And I mean, Yar Lapid himself is not, uh, you know, he
2: is a, he's a true centrist. I, he, he is, you know, he, he's quite an interesting figure to me um, because he has quite ably navigated this crisis. Um, from the beginning, right? I mean, you talk about, we, you know, he, he was once again, like Bennett was an ally of Netanyahu came out of a coalition with Likud where Netanyahu seized more power for himself and alienated his coalition partners. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it I, it will very much, I, I think on those kind of interesting societal changes, kind of like the core parts of Israeli culture, I, I do agree with you. You're not gonna see those big fundamental shifts, but I think at the same time, kind of, you know, the peace process and kind of that hope to have stability will be there because I think there's such fatigue right now, particularly with the flare up the conflict that why haven't we got this done, you know? And I, and I heard it, you know, with me, with right? Like, you know, he is proud Israeli, proud of his country proud of his heritage you know everyone should have the right to do so and be that right but he has no you know he has fear about Palestine and that stuff but he doesn't have hatred in his heart I don't think most people in Israel have a deep-seated hatred of each other but it's it's fear and you see it ingrained in the culture and I think kind of the stability around this government that that they have the op I mean they could they could be the worst thing ever they could they could show that these kind of unity governments are so dysfunctional forever that they could blow it up. Right. So there's absolutely risks, here. but they have, you know, people, I, I like to have faith in people and I think people rise to the moment. Um, and I, and I'm hopeful that's what we're going to see here, because I think people in Israel are just tired of the constant churn. And if, and if some smart people can come into place and say like, you know, how would I put this? Bennett will never allow the settlers to be removed from the strip. That is just not going to happen. That is something he's run on. Israel Batanu, right? One of the other partners in this coalition is also of that same mind. A boss is not, you know, we can we can call a boss what he is. Yes, he he has bigotry in his heart. There's no doubt about this, right? But at the same point, he's not. He's not like I'm out here to kill Jews, hate Jews. He's not. He's not with Hamas. He's not with any radical group. He is. A, he's a. He is a politician, who believes in peace. Who you know, recognizes that it's, an, a, it's a Jewish state. Israel has become a dominant Jewish state, but he wants to make sure that there's protections and rights for this the strong and you know populous Arab minority that is forty percent of that country. Um. And, and, I, and I think I, I, a boss to me is, per, is probably gonna be the key player in this because I, it's a question of what is a boss willing to move on? Because if he's the guy who says, we're not gonna get a two state solution, we're not gonna get the 1967 lights. And I mean, Yara Lapid says he's all in favor of the, the two state solution. And I do believe him, but I also think he's, he knows it's not gonna happen. Uh, in kind of that immediate sense. I think there might be, like, it's interesting. I think if they work together on it, there might be, like, I think the solution is almost an embrace of, of sorts of Bennett's vision, right? Where it's not a, you know, it's not two states, but it's one state where the Arab minority, you know, see similar things in other nations where there's strong cultural divides. North Ireland is a really good example of that, right? Where you have the nationalists, and the, the loyalists who have basically equal standing in the parliament and run on lists and, and stuff like that, where you could, you could see very much a dualist system like they have in North Ireland come into place, but it is ultimately kind of much like, much like Ireland, almost two separate ish nations, but not really because everything kind of is interconnected. So I don't know what that's going to look like, but I definitely think that there's some really unique opportunities
0: there. Yeah, and I, I think honestly, uh, Mansour Abbas. You know, despite like my qualms with his, uh, you know, like I disagree with him on a lot of the the social aspects. But one thing is, I mean, I think he's a, a shining light. I mean, for once, we're gonna have someone who can be an alternative to the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, and Hamas. I mean, he he is he's a d- different route. Young Palestinians, young Arab Israelis. They can put their faith in this guy who's, as you said, he works within the internal systems. He's working within the political system. He's not a terrorist. I mean, he's not taking violence into his hands. You know, this guy wants to find a peaceful solution. And I think that is a good thing uh, that provides an outlet for Arab Israelis to, you know, to channel their energy rather into violent means rather, you know, instead of doing another intifada, you know, this is good. Um, And I think one thing you mentioned, uh, you talked about foreign policy. I, I completely agree. There's no chance it's going to change. Um, the security apparatus won't let it change. I mean, if the prime minister looked like he was going to, you know, make peace or throw away some territory, I think I think he'd be out of office pretty soon. But one thing I want to point out, which is I think very interesting about this recent Gaza wars, I think it shows for once that you haven't been able to uh, mobilize the population around Israeli nationalism. This has been. Uh, easy playbook for many people throughout decades, Absolutely. not just Israel, where hardliners, where uh, authoritarians have managed to mobilize their population in support of them by, you know, go against the other, by attacking a country, by starting a war, by doing something. I think this did the exact opposite. And I think it really undermined what BB had done under Trump's tenure as the United States president. We have to remember, I mean, the Abraham Accords weren't some small thing. I mean, Israel signed peace and normalized relations with four countries, Sudan, Morocco, the UAE, and Bahrain. This is huge. And also like throughout Bibi's tenure, it was was a pretty open secret that the Israelis and the Saudis were working through backdoor channels to counter the Shia movement from Iran that was being spread into Yemen through the Houthis and through all throughout Iraq and Syria in the civil wars. I mean, they were pretty openly working together to counter the Iranian threat. And so I think I think this Gaza war is really gonna undermine uh, Bibi's lasting legacy. And I think it proves that once again, I mean, you can't, these aren't becoming options anymore. You know, I think people are fed up with war. And I think that is the main reason why we have this coalition government, but I don't think it'll last. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think final thought on that is like, I mean, if someone like Mansour Abbas chooses to work with Naftali Bennett, um, he has his eye on some sort of deal or some some sort of accomplishment there that he thinks can really maybe not, you know, create permanent peace or restore the 67 borders, what have you. I, he's not delusional, but I do, I do think he uh, is definitely hopeful and sees an opportunity there. So I'm, just, I'm I'm more than anything, I'm really interested to see what happens. I wanted to flip back to Netanyahu now because uh, you know, He's either on his way out or he's going to force another election. Um, both are totally possible. I mean, he he could be brought down, I think, in the course of the next election simply because if he's found guilty of corruption, um, he, he's barred by Israeli law, he's barred from office. Uh, he's been charged. Obviously, there's attempts to change it. So you, if you're charged, you get removed from office. Uh, I doubt that's going to be able to pass Parliament because... There are a number of Israeli parliamentarians, I'm sure, who at some point in their lives have been afraid of criminal charges coming their way. So we'll see what happens there. But more than anything, I'm just thinking about Netanyahu as kind of that cultural figure in Israel, right? That if if he goes, you know, there is going to be a lot of fear in Israeli society. and, And not I think rightfully so. But, you know, as you said, I, there's certain people in the media who try to dismiss the Abraham Accords, what have you, they're, they're significant, They, you know, they're not the deal that everyone kind of looks at, which is the Israel-Palestine peace deal that, but, you know, Israel ha- is in a tenuous situation, surrounded by people who are not their allies. And that normalization of relationships with their neighbors is not insignificant, right? So I, and I don't think his legacy in that regard is going to get Undone. Bennett likes those accords. Lapid likes those accords. They've been they've praised those accords, right? And I mean, Benny Gantz himself, who's in this government, was part of the negotiations to create those courts as well. Um, so I disagree with you on the like. I think Netanyahu's legacy. He's the longest-serving prime minister in Israeli history. I mean, he has done, you know, more. Con- he has fought in more conflicts as a prime minister. He has negotiated a number of agreements. Um, so no, I, I don't think his, his legacy will be reduced. His power, though, his power in Israeli culture is certainly going to be reduced. Uh, there, I think there's a lot of speculation that he he's going to hold on to the Likud leadership, he's going to keep fighting, he's going to do this, this, and that. I'm not so sure. I think once he's out of office, once he doesn't have the powers of the prime ministership to fight with, I think he's standing and kind of culture is going to be severely... And maybe that's more what you meant and maybe I, I apologize if I misunderstood. Uh, but, you know, he is going... He, he will be a significantly reduced figure, absolutely. Um, he will be far more reduced without... If he is found guilty of corruption. But I don't think his legacy is going to go anywhere. And I think there's going to be a lot of people and a lot of politicians, frankly, in, including Natalie Bennett, who may very well continue to try and emulate the model he's created. And particularly in terms of the prime ministership and centralizing power.
0: Yeah, and I just, you know, I think it's it's interesting. We talk about uh, Bibi's power. We have to remember that Bibi's power largely comes from a small segment of the society. It's 13% of the population are Hasidic Jews. These are like the people you see around wearing the hats and the curls these are ultra fundamentalist Jewish people who are deeply religious, and they're not really represented that much. I mean, there are far right parties. I'm Yamina is a far right party, but these are more secular far right p- parties. They don't really have the religious aspect to them. So it'll be very interesting to see how the demographics shape up, uh, because you know these people might be politically homeless. They, they have to go somewhere, and you know I I I just think this is a uh, you know almost you know calling this too soon. You know, a couple of days in Israeli politics is forever. We, we honestly don't know what's going to happen. And one of the reasons behind this is that, the fact that uh, their parliamentary system, although modeled on you know our British parliament, parliamentary system, it's in no way comparable. I mean, in Canada, we really only have three parties. We have the Conservatives, New Democrat, and the left, Labour. You know, same in the UK. But in In, you know, in Israel, they have like eight, 10, 12 parties, and they all get a fraction of the vote. So the idea that some other coalition couldn't easily form, I mean, it just takes one scandal, it takes one misstep by this coalition government. And they're out, you know, like, they're being held together through very tenuous ties of being anti-BB. And I, I just don't see that lasting.
2: Yeah. Well, the interesting thing to me is that Isaac Herzog, who's a longtime left-wing labor polit- politician, just got elected president of Israel. So he's going to have a lot of control on kind of the progress of certain things and certainly kind of the stability of government. Um, obviously, the president is kind of a background figure. I, Isaac Herzog, I cannot see as president of Israel, not trying to stick his finger into certain things. Um, you know, someone who himself ran against Netanyahu who was almost prime minister. Um, so that's gonna be very, I think that's gonna be a very interesting dynamic to stick in there. I also think just inside the coalition things, I mean, uh, unlike our own system, right, where we kind of have, we tend to fall to our minority parliaments and then once a government falls, we just go straight into an election. Um, if Netanyahu goes and Likud has a new leader, there is a lot, you know, Gideon Saar, who's leader of New Hope, uh, obviously Neftali Bennett, uh, they could form a new right-wing coalition and they could basically, you know, you know, they, we could have this change coalition for a year and then Bennett could not particularly want to hand over the prime ministership and decide he's going to you know, go, go, negotiate a, uh, a new right-wing coalition. So I think I'll leave it at that. There is a ton of uncertainty um we've laid out some of the bizarre scenarios that always happen within israeli politics but with that i think those are my final thoughts john do you have anything else to say
0: yeah no i think this was great you know i really liked our conversation with neve and i've liked being able to go into a bit more of a deep dive now for you know you and me are political junkies so we uh you know we can go into a bit more in depth in this after after segment here is Times Escalate, a podcast covering the collapse, and for all those out there, thanks for listening.